This is Solastalgia. My name is Sue Ann Harding. My name is Cullen Shaw. And this podcast is a series of stories about accidental environmental activism in Northern Ireland. I first came across the word solastalgia when I was reading Robert McFarlane's book, Underland. And solastalgia is a word that was coined by an Australian professor, Glenn Olbrecht, in 2003. And he defines it as a form of psychic or existential distress caused by environmental change. In this episode, we talk with Emma Must, poet, Belfast resident and, in another time and place, an accidental activist. We begin by discovering our common appreciations of the city of Belfast, including Emma's encounter with the tree felling and vegetation removal along the River Lagan towpath. Wolf Moon, the poem she wrote in response to that devastation, is read here for the first time, a world premiere. The conversation then moves back to the early 1990s, when Thatcher's government was embarking on its massive so-called Roads for Prosperity scheme, quipped as the largest road-building program for the UK since the Romans. Emma is fresh out of university and working as a children's librarian in Winchester. She sees on her daily train commute from Southampton how the top of Twyford Down, a beloved ancient chalk landscape of rolling hills, is being scraped away to build a motorway. So I'm a poet. I live in Belfast. I've been here for 11 years and it's definitely my home now. And I used to be a full-time environmental campaigner. Recently you launched the publication of your poetry collection, The Ballad of Yellow Wednesday, and we'll come to talk about that. So here you are in Northern Ireland, but you're not from here, like Colin and myself. Mm -hmm. We're also not from here. Tell us about this place. And why you maybe came here or what you've discovered in the time that you're here and what you love about this place. I'd be delighted to do that. Um, yeah, I, so I came for the poetry. That's why I came in 2011. I came really for the Seamus Heaney Centre and the extraordinary people I could be taught by here. People like Sinead Morrissey and Kieran Carson and Leontia Flynn. That's why I came, and that's kind of why I've stayed. Mm -hmm. But I discovered the river, I think. I discovered the River Lagan, and that just unlocked the city for me, I think. I can still remember the first time I tried to walk back from town along the river from the Albert Bridge, and that vista of water as you go round the bend. It took my breath away, actually. And I think once I figured out you could get into town and back to South Belfast along the river by walking and then for me later cycling, it changed how I felt about the city. I also like the river. I just think, wow, how lucky am I Mm. to live in a city that has this river running through it? Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I mean, I would walk or cycle along the river really frequently. I mean, up the other way as well, past the water meadows. I can still remember when 
somebody told me about the giant's ring. Mm. They said, oh, you know, there's this giant's ring, which I didn't know about at all. And um, I remember the first time I went there and seeing those huge banks from the road as he approached it. I was on, I was on foot. And that blew me away as well. And I do think the Lagan Valley is a very, very special place. Mm. And I've become very attached to it. Mm. And so close to Belfast, yeah. like so close to Belfast. It is extraordinary that you can walk around the Giant's Ring there or through the farms along the the river and you're a stone's throw away from the city centre. For me, one of the things about Belfast is the fact that I, lit- I can literally walk or cycle around the whole city. I've figured out ways of doing it pretty much, starting from the river and working away from it. But it's such a perfect size Belfast it's very human sized I think and that feels very important to me mm-hmm. if you stand even in the city centre you can you're sort of ringed by the hills you can mm-hmm. see hilltops mm-hmm. trees and sometimes sheep but it's absolutely magical you know? yeah that was one of the things when I first came here the fact that you can see the hills at the end of the street mm-hmm. that just you look down this little street aligned with houses and the hill is right there almost like you could touch it and see the hedgerows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the human scale of it is really important and valuable. I, I'm glad we're talking about that because it's often not maybe something that people talk about when they talk about cities. The idea that it's a city on the human scale is pretty basic but kind of important to yeah. remember. We didn't plan to talk about this, but the poetry side of it, you mm-hmm. came for the poetry. Yeah, I did. Can you tell us more about that? And is there a connection between the poetry and the landscape of Belfast and what we've been talking about at all? Very definitely. I think that there is. Uh, So I, yeah, I came for the poetry. I came, so I was living in Spain and this was around about, when was it? 2008 or so. And I figured that if I was ever going to get on and actually write my poetry I ought to get on with it before I was any older and so I looked at where I could go and do this I thought I need to go and do a master's in poetry just to get me going and I looked at all the places that I could possibly go and Belfast just kept coming back to me I'd I'd read Heaney when I was Mm. a kid and just adored it I read it at school and I'd been sort of watching and reading and following the contemporary poets based in Belfast for a very long time, even then. They were young poets, but they were doing things. Um, Sinead Morrissey, Leon Flynn. I used to teach in the summers at Durham University when I was living in Spain, and I managed to get my boss to give me a week off in 2010 to go to the Seamus Heaney Summer School. And I went through the door of there, and I thought, that's it, I'm coming here. So I applied, and I came over in 2011. And I've never really looked back. And I think, I think Heaney, obviously, yeah, the landscape was so deeply important to him and has had a huge influence on the way I think about poetry. But also the other poets writing about the city, mm. Kieran Carson in particular, who I hadn't read much before I moved to Belfast, but who has written some of the most important poems about the city of Belfast, I think. Um, Leontia Flynn, as I keep saying, very much an urban poet, I think of her as. I just like that 
because it's like it's in the air, poetry and the people here and the fact that a place can be known for its poetry like that and attracting people for its poetry. Not everyone would think of Belfast in that way and I really like that you've said that. Oh, that's so nice. A friend of mine, he said a long time ago, you can't sneeze in Belfast without hitting a poet, mm. which is great. And he's about right, actually. There's such a strength in depth, such a... There's so many poets in different parts of the city doing different things. And so many, so much of it is so good that there's real skill and thought and craftsmanship and fun, actually. It's the capital of poetry. There's been an absolute upsurge of of eco-poetry mm-hmm. focusing on, on climate change within the last very small handful of years, actually, within the last two or three or four years. Mm. And, um, for example, um, Kate Simpson, who's actually the editor on my poetry collection, mm. I got to know her first from a climate change anthology that she produced in 2021, um, Out of Time, um, Poetry from the Climate Emergency. Mm-hmm. And she gathered together a whole, more than 50 poems about the climate crisis by contemporary poets. There's her, but as way back really even as 2007, um, there's a wonderful um, anthology called Earth Shattering Eco Poems. Mm-hmm by Blood Axe, um, edited by Neil Astley, which, which gathered together poems by contemporary poets, but also sweeping way back earlier, and was incredibly directly focused on the potential value of poetry in, in tackling climate change even then. So, yes. But let's go back to the river, because there's an interesting thing in our story in that we only got to know each other fairly recently. But in fact, Colin and I, we got to know each other like more than a year ago now with the felling of the trees along what we call Molly Rose Way. And it transpired in our discussion with you that you were also around at that time and you also noticed the felling of the trees. Yeah, it was an extraordinary um, bit of synergy between us all, wasn't it, when when we discovered that. So this was January last year, January 2022. Now, I was lucky enough to have got a grant from the Arts Council to go and stay down at the River Mill Writing Retreat near Downpatrick in January. Um, And I was down there working on my next book. And I came back from the River Mill on the 17th of January. And I went for a walk the next day. I wanted to, you know, get back to my, get back to my river and walk along my river. I was in such a good mood. I'd just been paid to go and write poems uh, in a place that I absolutely love. I was in a really good mood. I went out in the early evening of the 18th of January. And I, I mean, it, I can't just, well, I can have a go at describing what I saw. But so this is around about 10 days after everything happened, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I wasn't here when it did. But I walked along my usual route past Governor's Bridge. And suddenly I noticed that all the trees in front of the flats there between the bridge and the boat club had been cut down and there were just these two stumps left and I 
I just couldn't understand what had happened. And then I kept walking and went past the boat club and between those, what used to be those two hedges where the sparrows used to go backwards and forwards across. I'd been watching them do that for 10 years. Those sparrows, they just used to fly backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards between the two hedges. And the hedge on the right had been just removed. It was so awful. And I, I mean, it wrecked my evening, wrecked my mood. And I just turned around and went home and, uh, yeah, and just tried to write about it in order to regain some sense of equilibrium. The fact that you noticed the hedge as well, I didn't know that. We hadn't spoken about that. But, yeah, those, those, they're real natural landmarks, aren't they? Or were in that place, that line of mature sycamores, that little triangle of trees next to Governor's Bridge between the bridge and the flats and the hedge. And perhaps more shocking, actually. I was thinking we saw them come down. We sort of heard the, the chainsaws and everything and the busyness of the, you know, the, the yellow men. But um, it's just as shocking, maybe more so, just to turn up 10 days later, people, the sawdust is gone and just see, just see the scars. Absolutely wreck the place you know for so many people i feel so lucky to have mm. writing and to have poetry because it, i mean it gives me a way of processing stuff like that mm. i do feel very very grateful for it i was so shocked i i, I want to talk about the song thrushes actually mm. so i've lived here just over a decade and there's i've got i've learned birds in belfast i've learned you know, birds, really. Me too. It's yeah, exactly it's wonderful, mm -hmm. isn't it? it and is. Mostly from my backyard. I've got yes. a yard with a holly tree, mm -hmm. and I get all sorts of birds there, which mm -hmm. is wonderful. But I've, I've taught myself birds. Now, song thrushes, I've seen... You don't see very many, and they're hard to tell apart from missile thrushes. The three places that I used to see them were by the tropical ravine, actually on that little patch of grass near the tropical ravine, near the Elster Museum, and you still will sometimes see them there. Along the lagoon up past the lock keepers, in some of the hedging up there, some of the beach hedges. And the place I saw them most often was on that triangle of grass mm. where they've cut down most of those trees. And there are no, I have not seen a song thrush there since they cut those trees down. And I just, not, not to mention the blackbirds and the robins, of which there were very many as well. I, I don't know when you, you'll tell me more about this but you know the, the sheer lack of thought about the environmental impact of of taking down those trees for the flood defense work i'm sure nobody thought about the song thrushes will you read your poem for us i will thank you so much for for asking me so it's it's taken a year <laughs> to, to edit and finish this is the first time i've ever read it <laughs> let's give it a go i should say as well before I read it. So one of the things about me being away and then coming back was that the night that I went for the walk was the night after the full moon in January, which is called the wolf moon. And I was walking early evening, so the moon was very low and enormous and yellow, yellow-white. 
So I sort of witnessed this um, on the night immediately following the night of the wolf moon. It's called Wolf Moon. I am howling. They have cut down all the trees between the boat club and the bridge. They have cut them down. They have left two stumps the height of a small child. A red cross marks each stub of flank. Not the healing kind. What about the blackbirds, robins, song thrushes? The joy of treading through the leaves in winter. The pleasure of swerving your bike to skirt the tree trunks. I am howling. Wolf Moon looks down on this folly. Yellow white face, moonful of sympathy, doubles itself over and over, illuminates the cut top of each bowl, makes wishing pools. I love this poem. Mm -hmm. I love Wolf Moon. And the fact that you wrote about swerving your bike, Mm. I did exactly the same thing. And part of my horror of the fact that it was gone was was kind of this memory of me doing that and no longer being able to do. And I didn't know that you had done that and you didn't know that I had done that. Molly Rose learned to ride Molly Rose learned to ride her bike there. Mm -hmm. Felt safe. It's like a palimpsest, you know, Mm -hmm. this layering of lives and stories and we they're all kind of simultaneously there in a place. We don't always see them. Sometimes you catch a glimpse, like now we can almost see the three of us kind of riding mm-hmm. at different times through that place. And that's also, that's that human scale of a city, right? People walk the streets, people live here, grow up here, bring their children here and let them play. And all of that is happening. These kind of lines of people moving through the streets along the river. Oh, that's so beautiful, Suan. That that description there. Do you know it's so weird? There's three. My poem is in three bits. Weirdly, and you can cycle your way through yeah. the stanzas. Yeah, through the stanzas. But the, the, I love the three us three cyclists mm-hmm. and and Molly Rose is the little one there, yeah. who I've never met, but I loved yeah. her podcast. She spoke very beautifully of the place herself. Actually, she yeah in an interview. I think it was the first one. She said uh, the trees felt like they were lit up with fairy lights. Beautiful, yeah. So beautiful, and uh, do you know in that piece in the in the paper as well, the, the children are all gathered around one of the tree stumps, mm-hmm. almost like it's a font mm-hmm. or a shrine or something, and it, it is almost like a pool. And that was mm-hmm. way after you know a year since I wrote that poem, mm-hmm. and and I saw that, and I I wanted to say as well that after that initial time I walked along the path, after they'd cut the trees down, a little bit later I saw that there had been hung on the fence these little ribbons with messages. And I understood later from meeting you two and then reading the article that the children had made those and they'd had a little ceremony. But I remember when I saw them, I just thought, oh, thank goodness, somebody else minds about this. And I felt really grateful that that they'd done that it's hard to express care for something like a tree without feeling 
silly, you know. It, it, that's why I always felt that perhaps it was, e it was easier to think it through Molly Rose's or a child's eyes. You, you bring children into your poem because they're allowed to talk about trees. They draw them all the time and they're allowed to even say that they that they speak to them and things like that. But we're not really supposed to say that, so you? unless you're poets, <laughs> <laughs> because you tell the truth. But uh, I remember Peter Crutch told me this story. So Peter Crutch is the man who we spoke to in a previous episode, and he tended the tree for all of us, making sure the sparrows were, were, were well uh, taken care of. But he had um, was walking along, and he s turned to a man, and he said, isn't it terrible about the hedge? And the man said, what are you talking about? He said, isn't it terrible about the hedge and the sparrows? And, he's, and the man said, ah, it's just a few old birds. Mm. And he walked on. And Peter Curse said, he didn't talk about it in the podcast, but he said he'd never felt worse in his whole life. Yeah. That he couldn't, he tried to share, and the person kind of completely denied it. And so the ribbons, the poem, Suan's um, banner, and the other banners, yes. all of these things were absolutely... Um, essential for all of us people doing it but also hopefully for other people yeah a sense of too. solidarity finding people but then an echo so anyone who themselves has been affected by it but feel alone they see the ribbons or they speak to somebody or they see that other people care and yeah you're not alone in the grief or the fight or whatever it is that you choose to do or feel like you need to do that's that's quite important isn't it I think it is important and I wanted to echo what Colin said there about Peter's experience of speaking to that man I had exactly well a very similar experience the first person I spoke to about the cut down trees so the ones between the boat club and the bridge um, a bit you know the other side of, of the hedging further along the river. The next walk or the one after that, when I went down there, I, I, I sort of stood by the stumps and I needed to talk to somebody else going past about it. And the first, I, there was a couple walked past, walking past. And I said to them, isn't it awful? Isn't it awful? And the woman said, oh no, oh no, 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 no. No, we need this flood defence. And I thought, oh, <laughs> okay. And so I was, you know, I wasn't actually howling, but um, I thought, okay, okay. So mm -hmm. no solace there then. No solace. Yeah. No solace. So what you're saying is is exactly right, Suan, isn't it? it? So the the ribbons and then and the banners and needing to know that you're not you're not actually mad that mm -hmm. the the world hasn't gone crazy and you're an outlier in some way actually. Mm -hmm. And and perhaps this escalation of people speaking about it and writing about it and and is a bit of a wave that we we can feel that we're a part of and and can grab and be be a part of because it's not just oh we missed the trees there's the whole science and biodiversity and, and everything around it um which is why those trees were important regardless of what um, dfi are, are going to say so perhaps there is a, a a groundswell you know as people hear others and and see others and feel that they can step up as well or or just be a part of it i guess we're hoping that one day every person that you see oh i'm sorry about the trees have been cut down and they too will go oh 
what a terrible thing. Yeah, small little actions which can make us feel more powerful or less alone, which is important, I guess, for, mm. for kind of grappling with everything that's going on. And for stopping forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what one of the things that poetry can do? Stop people forgetting, actually. So if you'd never been to Belfast before and you walked along there, you would not know that that used to be a line of beautiful trees. That's so true. And even the stumps have gone. Mm-hmm. And when you say the stump is the height of, the, of a small child, it's almost like the children are standing there with this stump child mm-hmm. in their midst. And those stumps are gone as well. And there is nothing, nothing left. It's complete obliteration. And you're right. People who come to Belfast for the towpath. Remember when we were protesting mm-hmm. and there's two women who had come over from Glasgow to visit Belfast over the weekend. And one of the things they came for was to walk the towpath, was to walk along the river. And this was during the the works, the building of the wall, and it had all been blocked off. And they were like, where's the towpath? To think that it's a major tourist attraction, a major attraction for people to come. And those people can walk down that towpath and never know that those trees were there or that there was a protest or a fight or mm-hmm. you howling at the moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> howling at the moon and and also drawing on that, I mean, I was talking earlier about how discovering that I could cycle around Belfast, that I could get around the whole of Belfast on my bike you know, really made me want to stay here. But it has been really difficult in the last year to cycle around because of the towpath being blocked off mm-hmm. for the flood defence work yes. right the way down to the Albert Bridge. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and also, I don't know what they've done with the dog roses. So, I mean, all of those rose, rose roses right the way along. I mean, I'm assuming they aren't there anymore. They're gone. And so on so many levels, it, it's felt like a really difficult year, actually, and that bad decisions have been made that are not forward-looking. And from a pure mobility point of view, it's been really difficult. And yeah, I've watched people trying to walk along the towpath and getting as far as the blocked-off bit and not being able to go any further. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's not a good thing. It's, I hope mm-hmm. they have some justification for well, these flood defences. Yeah. I didn't know about those hedges. I think I kind of knew but didn't want to really believe it because that's another part of I loved those dog rose hedges and again there were habitats to so important and 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 just smelt so beautiful as well in the summer Mm -hmm. absolutely beautiful Mm -hmm. and yeah and i i'm reminded of that banner that i saw in the paper in this article i saw recently and suan you're holding this banner it's actually a little bit of paper in fact and it says mature trees are a mature tree is a flood alleviator Yeah, it really is. And to be able to work with what we have and that took 90 years to grow, Mm -hmm. they have all their justifications and they have all their reasons and they have all their answers. It is very frustrating, though, because their answers are dead. You know when when there's no echo and it just comes back to you like a thud? There's no more conversation to be had here is Mm -hmm. their answer. No, we are not putting back the trees. We had to remove the vegetation. Yes, we will do some replanting. That's their litany of answers. But the, that 
litany of answers doesn't restore place to people. It doesn't restore place to birds, song thrushes, all the insects and that lived in those dog rose hedges. It doesn't restore place to the people walking up and cycling up and down the towpath. I think the what struck me was that they got it all wrong, except for the technicality of the floodball being, I'm sure, one of the best tidal floodballs in the world. I'm sure it's Or absolute. maybe not. Maybe we don't we, know. We'll never know. <laughs> it's a 200-year event that they're planning for. But for me, it was the pandemic and walking around incessantly, you know, confined to barracks, you know, the one-mile radius you're supposed to observe or one-hour walk you could put in. But for me, it was just this sort of um, kind of circle you could draw around your house. You, sometimes you'd go out and go north and then south. But, you know, invariably I would go along the, the, the towpath and then to the hedge and then turn back. And that was just, just that routine, that lovely moment of the day where, you know, you could just be out and, and, and you that remember the weird way you used to walk? Like if somebody's on the path, you'd walk in the middle of the roads. And, yeah, uh, that's right, really actually, strange. like right out into the middle mm -hmm. of the road. Yeah. No cars, you could do that, yeah. yeah. And so uh, the Belfast became a sort of pedestrian city. Yeah, and all of these people enjoying the outdoors, specifically the, you know, the, those those areas where, you know, you, there were trees and these urban trees and things became more and more and more familiar. We were completely unaware of the threat. So when all of a sudden, just like yourself, we went abroad and we were stepping out and and we came around the corner and these, these things were gone or, or going, then really just completely rocked my world. I just I really yeah. had a, a visceral um, reaction that I, I kind of know instinctively that I wouldn't have had had it not been for the pandemic, that the, the outdoor world, those, those, those familiar places were everything, you know, because there were times where we didn't know where we were going with this pandemic. It was scary there for a while. Yeah. You know, so... Um, the the natural world. Always, you know, if you went by that sparrow hedge, it was always party time. You know, they were always getting on with things. No pandemic, you know, for the for the sparrows. So really, this intense reliance on 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 those things, and to see them never occurred for me for a second. There's a beautiful, there's a beautiful dedication in I think it's P. G. Woodhouse's autobiography, where he dedicates it to his daughter and he said who died and he said um, to Mary Louise or whatever who I loved dearly and didn't occur f to me for a second that you were mortal mm. which I think is a lovely expression mm. of love you, you can't it's not, comp not comprehensible that something you love can just go for the trees I never never occurred to me for a second that they were mortal mm. They're trees. Mm -hmm. They never predecease you. I mean, they, somebody, one of them might get sick, but you don't see them all go in one day. So that was just absolutely. So their disregard for the trees, the fact it was for a flood alleviation, albeit a tidal one, so coming from the sea, but then. So the dissonance and the fact that there were no plans to restore anything was just wrong, wrong, wrong. And I was thinking, this is so damning, you know, of, of planning practices and, and all those sort of things. So it really was absolutely devastating. So this is a podcast about accidental activism. And 
these are our moments of accidental activism, but you've told us that you're not an activist anymore, but you're a writer, but you were an accidental activist, not here in Northern Ireland. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Maybe that first moment. Yes, I can definitely talk about mm, that. That's really interesting. Of course. Because we get, I think if you spoke to, just apparently if you speak to any alcoholic, they can always remember that first drink. So, but if maybe you speak that's to any alcoholic. That's the analogy we want. So, uh, activism and alcoholism as power. Well, uh, maybe, uh, I like, Colin, I quite like that, actually. Well, instead of this defining <laughs> thing. But we can all remember that thing for me. Yeah. Like, you can oh, remember yeah, the, yeah. I you can know, remember. Right, yeah. so you've, 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 um, yeah. Identified it in two poems. And you remember, I remember. So yeah. there's a moment where you go, God damn it. You yeah. know? Oh, there so is. That's I- exactly right. And I, I really like this phrase of yours, accidental activism. Yes, I can tell you about that. So I'm from the south of England, from near Winchester, which has this extraordinary landscape of rolling chalk hills. And I was away doing my English degree at Leeds. And then I came back in the summer of 1992 and I was working in Winchester as a library assistant in the children's library in the town. I was living in Southampton, so I was uh, commuting to work every day by train from Southampton to Winchester and then back again. And when I... So I'd been aware that there was something going on with Twyford Down and the attempt to build a motorway through it. And I'd followed what was going on about this while I was a student up in Leeds, reading the papers and, you know, willing it to be stopped by the campaigners who were then campaigning on it. But when I came back down south and I was working, I had to... The train took me past the end of Twyford Down, this mile-long hill of chalk, twice a day. And at that point, which is the summer, late summer of 92, the top of the hill had been scraped off. Just a very small amount, a small depth of grass and topsoil had been scraped off the end of the hill. The hill was no longer green on the end, but white. So there was, it was like this extraordinary white page flashing at the sky. And it was absolutely unbearable. And I had to go past this thing twice a day, on the way to work and on the way home again. And it, it upset me Everything, I just, I couldn't bear it. It upset me so much to see this. I thought, well, somebody must still be campaigning about this. It it seemed to me that very little of this work had gone ahead. The hill, 99% of the hill was still there. It was just that they'd scraped off the top bit. Um, And somebody must be doing something about it. So I spent about a week on the phone trying to find out what was going on around Friends of the Earth and the Twyford Down Association. Anyone I could think of, people that I knew had been campaigning against the road, you know, brilliantly for a long, 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 long time. And everyone said, no, 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 no one's campaigning against it anymore. You know, the road's going ahead. Mm. 
So by the road, I mean the missing link of the M3 motorway, which was designed to shave seven minutes off the road journey between Southampton and London. And it was apparently going ahead. But I thought, no, the hill's still there. Somebody must be still doing something. And then in the autumn of 92, a a poet friend of mine, actually, a guy called Andy Jordan, a poet friend from Southampton said, oh, well, you know, there's a camp up on the hill. And I said, no, let's go, let's go up. Um, And so I went up with Andy to the camp and found these people living on the hill, these young people adopting a way of life very close to nature, very low impact. They, They were known as the Dongas tribe after the ancient drovers' trackways that went through that end of the hill where they were living. The ancient drovers' trackways, incidentally, were a scheduled ancient monument, a site of national importance where they were living, theoretically protected. And I just, again, that feeling of, oh, the people are doing something about it. And this lit my touch paper, and I thought, right, people are doing something. I then learnt that there was still an offshoot of the town-based campaign groups going strong. They were called the Friends of Twyford Down. Now, Becca Lush, who was a very important campaigner in the Twyford Down story and a fellow campaigner, we became very close and we our energies kind of sparked off each other. She told me about the Friends of Twyford Down in Winchester. So there was this dual access, these younger people living up on the hill, these people with more conventional lives in Winchester, meeting every Friday night. And that was what made me realise that we could still do something. Finding your people. Finding your people and and thinking, yeah, we can do something. The fact that, that it's just the top is scraped off and there are people who care about it. It's so important. Even if you're the one person who cares about it, it's almost like if we are that person, number two person will find us and then number three person will find us and number four and then we will find the other group down the road. Who I find that really empowering because mm. it's like we, how could we not be that person rather than saying I, c- I can do nothing? I can just be one person who will find my people or will attract some people towards me. Brilliant. Tell me about these so the two groups, uh, one conventional lives, the others obviously living off grid and but with the common cause, which was to save the down. You yep. say they were meeting every Friday. So how, how, how did you fit in to those two groups? The whole story of what, ha- what happened there and then what happened next in terms of mm-hmm. um, the, the national... Um, effects of of what happened at Twyford Down was has always been about um, building broad alliances. You know everything from um, pleated skirted Tory ladies to younger people with beads in their hair um, and very colourful clothing. And I think it's been the sense of common purpose, the sense of common cause that yeah. Although people have got very different lifestyles, they're you know, very much focused on on trying to achieve the same ends which which in our case there was to stop this motorway 
going through, lengthways through a mile-long hill, hill of chalk in an area of outstanding natural beauty with two scheduled ancient monuments, two sites of special scientific interest. You know, theoretically, one of the most protected places in Britain. And they were trying to build a motorway lengthways, <laughs> lengthways along the hill. So, yes, so I, I do think that campaigns very much go in waves, don't they? So you, so I'm under absolutely no illusion that without all of the work that had gone on before, so Friends of the Earth, the Twyford Down Association, also Earth First, there were, there were some groups of Earth First activists who'd brought over tactics from America who were starting to do some actions at Twyford Down actually in quite early 1992. Greenham Common women as well. There was a number of women from Greenham Common, very experienced activists who brought their skills early in 1992. These waves of activity. Yeah, but by the time the road was beginning to be built in later 1992, yeah, um, Colin, the... The Dongas tribe on the hill and the Friends of Twyford Down in the town, we were all very much working together. So we, so we all had to learn how to, how to campaign. We tried literally everything from petitions to the European Commission and getting signatures from people in, in the town on a weekend on a rickety pasting table mm. to try to push forward this European Commission action, legal action involving Europe as well. And then once the first work was taking place on the Hill, direct action, which involved everything from lying in front of machinery to locking yourself by the neck to it and mass actions so this was a little bit later there was a there was a a very key turning point in all of this which was yellow wednesday yellow wednesday was the 9th of december 1992 and this was the night the dawn when the department of transport arrived on mass onto Twyford Down at dawn with 80 security guards wearing fluorescent jackets and the first bulldozer machinery. And they set up an encampment on the down, displacing the Dongas tribe. So there's this three-day battle, really, which began on Yellow Wednesday. And key here was Winchester College. Winchester College owned the land um, on which the Dongas tribe were camped. And they had a court order to evict them. This was all connected. So after Yellow Wednesday, the Dongas tribe were no longer there. They were battled, they were bruised from the battle. A lot of them were actually quite seriously, you know, badly injured, bruised with, um, you know, torn ligaments. Goodness knows what else. And they really moved away from the hill to recuperate and from that point on 
it was kind of over to the Friends of Twyford Down and our meetings every Friday in the Friends Meeting House in Winchester. And the energy that would fizz out of between the, the wooden planking of, of that hall. I mean, you, you could probably run a small country on the energy that came out of it. And so from that point on, we thought, right, we have to do everything we can. And, and so it was a question of organising actions and rallies, public meetings, ferocious networking to try to get as many people onto the hill as we could at weekends. And meantime, people locking themselves by the neck to bulldozers and running in front of the machinery and being dragged back out. Absolutely everything we could, trying to get the media interested. It took, that took quite a while Yellow Wednesday was the turning point on that. The Guardian covered Yellow Wednesday and that began to to turn the tide on the media coverage. But really, from that point on, six months of literally everything we could think of to try to stop the road. And we nearly did stop it. Some of the eminence greases (laughs) involved in the campaign they were trying to argue for a tunnel to be built through the hill instead. And one of the, a very senior man, a very important environmental campaigner in the UK, told us that um, we, ve- we did almost succeed in, in winning, that, winning that argument. We didn't, and the road did go ahead, but we threw everything we could think at it, including our bodies. So you went from being a librarian on the train, going back and forth, to somebody involved in direct action for months. Yes. Yes, I did. And and we learned how to do... F- you see, there was no email then. Almost nobody used email back in 1992. And social media was had not even been dreamt of. So... Yes, and we, I think the networking was the thing. I mean, we, we were f- writing handwritten flyers, faxing them out, faxing the amount of fax paper we got through. It was legendary. And I wanted to say, Suani said earlier about you'll find another set of people that's doing, wanting to do the same thing as you, and another group, and another group, and another group. A very important thing that happened early in 1993 was The Ecologist magazine. The Ecologist magazine down in Dorset. Mm. One of their editors, Simon Fairley, came to an action we organised and he said, well, I've got this office. Come and use our office. I think, I think the boss was away. <laughs> and so we did a whole load of us. would go up and down on the train and we used their office and that became a hub for networking and faxing out of flyers and, um, and all the rest of it. So that was another aspect of what was going on. But yes, so I, I can't remember the point I stopped being a library assistant. At some point... I must have not continued to have that job. I can't tell you when it was. <laughs> I tried really hard to keep the two things going. I think in the aftermath of Yellow Wednesday, so I camped over on the hill on Yellow Wednesday, but then I had to go back to work. I went back to work the next day, smelling of wood smoke and, um, you know, not smelling great, to be fair. And um, I sort of got away with it for a wee bit, <laughs> but not for very long. So, yes, I was. I sort of went from being a library assistant to being an accidental activist. And how did you feel? How did you feel doing all of that? Because I, I can imagine that there would be a certain amount of adrenaline 
a sense of urgency, camaraderie, kind of joy. Like we're going to do this. We're going to, it's going to work. But also simultaneously fear and dread and a rising dread that it's not going to work. And at what point do we stop? Um, how how did it feel to to be involved in that? And and for for such an extended period of time. Yes. I think we were, I, in my whole life, I've never been involved in anything so frenetically energetic and with people, really a small a small n- n- sort of hub of people actually, and then people broadening out from that point, trying so hard to achieve a single goal. We were desperate to stop that road going through absolutely desperate we were we were not going to let it go through and we would do everything it took so I don't think we had a chance I don't think I had a chance to think how it felt we were absolutely exhausted I mean we had honestly about I would say about four hours sleep a night for about six months Mm. something like that but I was in my 20s remember so I could actually do that then I couldn't do that now so yes absolutely adrenaline but also very smart thinking and sharp focus and a brilliant mix of tactics actually to try to achieve our ends and I do remember the point where it switched to thinking I don't think we can stop it but that wasn't until the summer of 93 it probably was around about May or June perhaps of 93 and I do remember a small action around about then when we were locking ourselves to one of the very large earth movers, these things called CAT 245s. And the trench in the hill was going, was getting gouged out lower. It was probably taller than we were at that point. And we, so we were just surrounded by chalk and the level was going down. There weren't very many of us during the week. There were these huge actions at weekends, enormous actions and marches at the weekends, but not many of us during the week. And I do remember thinking, maybe we can't stop it, but we're gonna keep going. We're gonna keep trying. Also, I should say that by this time, the Department of Transport had hired a private detective agency Bray's detective agency based in Southampton to build up dossiers of activity on us, on the direct activists. And they were taking forward proceedings to bring out an injunction against us to stop us protesting. And I think the combination of seeing the hill gradually disappearing and then this burgeoning legal action from the Department of Transport. And at one point it did tip over for me into fear. I only had one moment, I think, when I thought, we might have bitten off more than we can chew, which was when when a jaunty young man in a white sports car with a flat-topped haircut turned up at my flat on my doorstep one evening in the summer of 93 and handed me a packet of papers and it said, um, come to the High Court on Friday and you will be committed to prison. 
more or less. And I thought at that point, I thought, ah, I did. I remember feeling really alone again then and um, quite scared. The knot in the bottom of your stomach, I've, I almost have it listening to you. That that kind of moment when when you just think, fuck, I, I'm in over my head or... or well, their techniques are powerful and efficient. They've singled you out. A big hand has come down. It's picked you out. Yeah. So that, that's their technique, is to, is to just make people feel alone again. Yes, that's brilliant. So me and 76 others, so the 77 of us, they took the injunction out against, yes, Colin, I agree with that. But also, I, w- I really want to say that feeling only lasted about a day, or, or that night, and I think because I, I, most of my life I've lived on my own. I was living on my own then in this my tiny flat in Southampton, and I was on my own that night when they delivered the papers. But I think once those of us who'd been served with these papers were able to catch up over the the coming days, yeah, and we went and sat on the hill. We did. We had we had a meeting on the hill. Beautiful. I can remember that meeting. Beautiful day. Clear blue skies. Summer of 93, early summer. And we said, well, what are we going to do? 